Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. It's an exciting show today, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Because today we are talking all about music and the people who make it in literature, from Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus to the concert of the future imagined in Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. We're calling it Last Night a DJ Saved My Life. Octavia came up with that one. <laughs> and the theme is inspired by our guest, David Cavanaugh, whose most recent book, Good Night and Good Riddance, is an impressive exploration of John Peel, the DJ who you could probably argue has done more than anyone else to shape Britain's taste in music in the last century. Octavia and I will also be discussing the theme and giving you some book recommendations. So stay tuned. So Octavia, could you introduce David before we start the interview? Sure thing. So David Cavanaugh has written for Select, Q, Mojo, and Uncut, and is the author of acclaimed history of creation records, My Magpie Eyes Are Hungry for the Prize, which is, I think, a great title. His latest book, Good Night and Good Riddance, has been called a bravura work of close listening, scholarship, and writing in The Guardian. It covers 265 shows hosted by the inimitable, inimitable radio DJ John Peel, whose so-called erudite, non-anarchic, abstract expressionist fearlessness, my God, that's a mouthful, oh my God. left an extraordinary legacy in the world of music. Peel's career spanned 37 years, beginning in 1967 with a show called The Perfumed Garden on the midnight shift at pirate radio station Radio London. This was followed by a long career at the BBC, where he managed to consistently flout the rules and get away with it, playing an eclectic mix of whatever music caught his attention. By the time of his death in 2004, he was a real institution, someone who had not only introduced Britain to numerous new artists like David Bowie, Elton John, and even the Black Keys, but who had indelibly shaped the nation's taste in music. David Kavanaugh, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading, so could you go ahead? John Peel Show. Radio 1, 5th of August, 1994. From Guildford in Surrey, Salt Tank are an electronic trio who have released two EPs, ST1 and ST2. They've also put out a mini-album, ST3. Another mini-album is planned for next month. See if you can guess what it's going to be called, says Peel. And Salt Tank have recorded a session for the show tonight. Trance-like, with ambient leanings, They'll end up falling between two stools, not quite hippie-ish enough for the ambient dub crowd, but too hippie-ish for the super club hordes at Ministry of Sound and Cream. Salt Tank will later release the Peel session as an EP called, what else, ST5. Peel's final record tonight comes from The Source, an alias for MCJJ of SL2, the rave act that had a hit two years ago with On a Ragatip. Before playing The Source's track, High Powered, Peel says, have you noticed how everything all of a sudden is jungle? How long before the Barbara Streisand jungle remixes? Not long, I think. Jungle is the word on everyone's lips, all right, but there are two ways of looking at the music. You could call it the breakthrough dance genre of 1994, or you could say it owes its origins to pre-existing genres like breakbeat hardcore. Peel has had a part to play in its evolution, championing the Ragga Twins and Shut Up and Dance in the early 90s. But if everything all of a sudden is jungle, that doesn't mean Peel is bored of it. In fact, he's just getting to the point of recognizing its potential to be the next big force in music. And this has a lot to do with another evolutionary change. Earlier today, a compilation was released on the Romford-based Breakdown Records, featuring tracks by DJs such as Ronnie Size, Alex Reese, DJ Hype, and Danny Brakes, who recorded proto-jungle tunes 
under the name Sons of a Loop-de-Loop Era. And while this compilation is certainly full of jungle, these DJs will go on to forge a more produced sound that puts less emphasis on breaks. The title of the compilation is Drum and Bass Selection 2. Peel has already been photographed deep in the bowels of his record collection with a copy of its predecessor, Drum and Bass Selection 1, jutting out from his shelf. He could have chosen any one of 25,000 records to pose with, but he chose that one. Maybe it's because he sensed that before he knew it, everything all of a sudden was going to be drum and bass. Thank you very much. I think that gives a good sense of how the book is written, which is this collection of 265 Peel shows, yeah. um, in which you give a list of which bands he played that night, or artists, um, and then give a little presses of what was happening politically Yeah, I left out the news story. There is a news story for each show. That one was about the tuna wars, which didn't seem too gripping to me. Uh, some of them are much more serious. There's a lot of politics in those news stories, a lot of war, death, um, famine, pestilence, everything. And um, it covers a 37-year span. So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of very serious and heavy news events. And Peel, very often, at the end of the day, would have to come on radio at 10 p.m. and broadcast for the last two hours after <laughs> people had been um, really put through the ringer by the events of that day. Yeah. I, why don't we start talking about politics? Because I, I, uh, Octavia and I were discussing the book before the show, and that was one thing that surprised both of us by how political Peel was. Um, it was everything. I mean, in these 35 years, he starts in 67 when he came back from America. He'd been out there for seven years. And he started as a pirate DJ on... Uh, a ship called Radio London. And that was when, you know, the Vietnam War was on. Um, Peel was, at that point, a pro-marijuana legalization revolutionary, peaceful revolutionary, but still a revolutionary. Um, at various times in the decades that followed, he was a liberal, a socialist, uh, a supporter of the miners' strike, a fierce, outspoken critic of Tony Blair's Labour government, because he felt it had betrayed many of the people who voted it into power. And um, even though he never said vote Labour or support the miners directly, um, he said it indirectly enough and often enough that he left his listeners in no doubt which side of the divide he stood. And bear in mind that throughout the day, most of the other Radio 1 DJs would have represented um, Thatcherism quite frankly. Oh, right, of course. I hadn't thought that that would be the case, actually, Radio 1 DJs. I wanted to ask you about his early days on that boat, because it's such a romantic idea, these boats offshore, pirate radio boats, um, and his show, The Perfumed Garden, which kind of came across like this utopic space. Well, it was, yeah, it does seem like a very romantic image, the idea of a bunch of groovy cats in the 60s kind of, uh, you know, um, living it up on a, on a ship. Um, three miles out to sea. Actually, no, it was a very tightly formatted um, situation. Um, the Radio London boat was called the Galaxy. It was a 650-ton, one-time World War II American minesweeper. Um, the whole point about it was that it was it was um, moored outside, three miles outside the, the off the British coastline, which meant that it technically wasn't, it didn't fall within the jurisdiction of the British Coast Guard anymore or the British police. Um, it was, in fact, technically on its way to Holland and had a Dutch crew to make sure that the DJs didn't misbehave. So they weren't smoking dope and getting women on board. It was nothing like that. Um, it was a very tightly formatted top 40 station. But Peel was the 
was the exception to the rule. Peel played whatever he wanted. Peel was on very late at night, midnight to two in the morning, and he brought back some records from America, psychedelic records and West Coast records. Um, he let it be known that um, he was going to play all these types of music, so, so record companies in London would make sure that he got all the, the albums and the singles brought out to him on a tender boat from, from Harwich. And uh, for two hours a night, he was just an absolute um, maverick and played music that no 16-year-old or 18-year-old listener in, in Britain would have ever heard before. Velvet Underground, Captain Beefheart, Country Joe and the Fish, Jefferson Airplane, and um, Bob Harris, who was uh, who is now a well-known DJ on radio too. He was a devotee of the Perfume Garden, and he has written on his website that he had never heard anything like this in, in, in his life. Could not believe that anything like this existed on British radio. It was truly revolutionary music radio. And I think you make the point that one of Peel's geniuses was to tap into the counterculture at the time. Um, at that time, it was it was sort of still the hippie culture. So there was lots of sort of peace and love and understanding, even though, as you say, it was quite a tight ship. And once he got over to the BBC and punk came around, he dropped that act a bit and became well, a lot more hard-edged. It wasn't an act. And the reason you can say for definite that it wasn't an act is because the final Perfume Garden in August 67 was a five-and-a-half-hour show. You can't keep an act up for five-and-a-half hours without the mask slipping. So he believed implicitly in, in flower power. He believed in the hippie dream. He believed in the revolution. It's just that he got disillusioned later in the 60s when it became clear that things weren't really going to change. If, if listen, if he'd looked politically around him, he would have seen that homosexuality was legalized, abortion was legalized, um, the death penalty was officially um, uh, done away with. Social change was happening, but the kind of social change that he wanted, um, mainly the legalization of cannabis, that wasn't happening. And he suspected politicians of being part of some um, uh, venal establishment. Later on, I, I suppose as he got older, that uh, view softened and he became fairly close to being, I would say, at certain points, a conventional socialist. But, um, and bear in mind, of course, he'd come from a very, very well-to-do family. He went, he went through the public school system. He, went, he, he was at boys' boarding school for many years. So he was, um, uh, his, his politics weren't ingrained in him from childhood or, f or by his family. They were a conscientious politics. He was, a, he was an empathetic compassionate, um, liberal stroke socialist. Uh, but by the time uh, the mid-70s came along, I suppose he'd had ho all his hopes of, um, of a true peaceful revolution systematically destroyed by, you know, um, well, Ted Heath and various other people in the 70s. I think that's one of the things that comes across so clearly in the book is it's the evolution of the man yeah. alongside, you yeah. know, the evolution of pol the political landscape and also the music. Um, and I, I wanted to ask how you decided to structure the book in the way that you do, because it's incredibly generous to your readers in that, you know, it's, it's, the book contains a phenomenal amount of information, you know, about, about politics, about music, but also about the human, John Peel. And um, I found that the way it was structured with the little political pressy first and then the analysis of the show, um, really helpful uh, and, and kind of... Um, it meant that it never felt like I was reading, you know, a lot of information. It really stru structured it like a narrative for me, which I, I was very grateful for. Well, good. I'm glad it was a narrative because I was a bit worried that it, that it mightn't. All I saw early on when I had the idea was 
was what it looks like. So if you can imagine what it looks like without any words in it. I saw a load of shows, um, some taking up one page, some taking up a half page, some taking up two or three pages, depending on how important they were musically. Um, and I saw news, news stories in italics, but I couldn't read them because I hadn't you know, decided what they would be yet. I just sort of visualized the book and, um, and dates and, and, uh, and stuff. And uh, what had happened was I'd started listening to old Peel shows because I grew up with him you know, when I was a kid long ago and listened to him every night, or mo almost every night for years in my teens. But, but years had gone by and I hadn't really thought about him that much. But then a friend of mine sent me a, a, an old Peel show from 1980 to listen to because he wanted me to hear something that he played. And I was mesmerized by it. And I thought, this is amazing. This is, this is like history, radio history. And I asked him if there were any more. And he said, yeah, you know, there's hundreds of them. You should get, get hold of them. They're all online. Th not all Peel shows are online, but, you know, all the ones that are available are online. All the ones that people taped in their bedrooms and circulated are on, um, look at a website called John Peel Wiki, if you haven't already. And so I collected quite a lot of them and, and catalogued them and started listening to one or two a night and found very quickly that um, I needed to write something about them. And what made me think that it might um, justify a book was that um, the surviving footage from the Perfume Garden from 67 and the recordings that survived go right up to his death in 2004. And that journey, you, you can hear the difference in his voice, his demeanor, his language, mm -hmm. and you can hear the difference in the country behind him as he's speaking. Um, and every show I listened to, whether it was 74, 77, 84, 94, or whenever, it was always a slightly different peel um, and a very different Britain and a very, very, very different music world. And I thought, well, if I string enough of these shows together in the right order, hopefully it will tell a story. Mm, well, it certainly does. Um, and actually, this brings me, I'm going to skip forward a little bit, but because I wanted to ask you about national voice, this idea of national voice that, you know, Peel, he, he kind of collected and caught that, that atmosphere in each show. And like you said, we see the evolution all the way through. Um, and his show being at the end of every day and, mm. and, and things that you've touched upon. And I was thinking now, the way that we consume music so separately from one another, you know, um, do you think we've lost that, you know, that there, that, that there could be a, a, a way of collecting, taking the, I suppose it's like a litmus paper, taking the temperature of the country at the time, at the moment, like, like Peel, so I'm not being very clear, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I listen to music, for example, on Spotify a lot. I don't listen to music radio that much. Um, so I'm my own curator, I'm my own DJ. Yeah. And so that there's lacking that but human. But that's the attraction now. I mean, you don't have to, to wade through the, um, somebody said quite an interesting thing about my book on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, actually. He said, um, um, reading this book has reminded me that um, it's important to listen to music you don't like. Um, quite often when you listen to a Peel show, he would play music you didn't like. Um, there could be anything up to 14 or 15 different genres of music in a show. You couldn't like all of them or you'd be John Peel himself. And very often, a lot of them would be very new and disorientating and quite aggressive and violent and extreme. And you wouldn't like them at first. And maybe you'd wish that he didn't play them so that he could get to whatever the, the bands were that you did want to hear, whether it was the Smiths or or the Jesus and Mary channel, who, who whatever, whatever era you're growing up in. Um, but um, 
but it's true. A lot of listening to radio back then was listening to music that you didn't like, and now you can just eradicate that from your life. And in fact, you can eradicate uh, seeing, watching television that you don't like, or reading any news that you don't like. You can just have an entire supply of material going into your brain that consists only of things that you like. Um, but it does limit you. And I, d I do it myself. I have like an hour of film soundtrack music or whatever in the music in the morning, and then an hour of 60s pop or whatever um, as the day goes through. And um, it wasn't like that when I was growing up. I remember it clearly. There was so much music, so much telly, so much um, culture that I didn't like um, in order to get to the bits that, that really blew my mind. And that has gone now, I think, from from um, well, from my life, from a lot of people's lives. Um, but, but short of having, because there's no, there's no solution to this, you cannot have a DJ like John Peel coming along now because he wouldn't be allowed to do all of, of that stuff. Someone would say, you have to specialize, or at the very least, you have to think of two or three things that you want to play because you'll just alienate everyone if you keep doing what you're doing. And, um, and so he'd be hemorrhaging listeners that whatever station was employing him desperately needed to hold on to, <laughs> and uh, I don't think he'd get employed for very long. It's quite amazing what he achieved, and I think you argue that one of the reasons he's so popular is people trusted his taste, mm. even if even if they didn't agree with mm. with what he was playing at a particular moment in time. They were willing to listen and give it a chance. Um, yeah, they trusted his taste, and I think him as well. His personality was very different, very often to that of um, other DJs. We didn't have that many stations around at the time. Um, and most of the DJs, certainly in the 70s and 80s, when I was listening, were very hypey and um, slightly insincere. I mean, they, th they were these are the people who were later satirized by Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse, you know, and with good reason in many cases. Um, whereas Peel would not quite give it to you straight because he did talk in quite an eloquent and round-the-houses way. He was very, uh, very witty and very original in his speech. Um, but he, you got the feeling that he wasn't lying to you. He wasn't selling you something. He wasn't, um, he wasn't part of some big kind of music industry conspiracy to get you to buy something. In fact, very often he would just, he would play something and say, "Well, I'm not sure about that," or "I'd need to hear it a few more times." He never said, "Absolutely, absolutely amazing. Let's make sure that's in the top twenty next week." There was none of that, and um, or very rarely actually. There were, he had his few favourites who, who he liked to, to see in the charts, but um, no, it was a, it was an an attractive combination of some very extreme and varied and diverse music that you weren't hearing anywhere else on the radio and a, a warm and witty older person that you trusted as a custodian of the music and as a guide to help you through the minefield. Let's go back a bit and just talk about some of those artists. I think a, a lot of people know Peel in the context of many of the artists that he seemed to introduce to the world or at least was was very turned on to very early in their careers. So, I mean, you list them <laughs> in the introduction and it's I staggering. I some of them. That's some the of point. them. Only some of them, um, yeah. But, you know, David Bowie, Billy Bragg, um, Aphex Twin, you know, uh, yeah. right up to when he died, he was still discovering. Uh, yeah, he was playing Black Keys like a few years before they really broke through and stuff. But, um yeah, um, he wasn't. He wasn't playing. He's very often remembered as a champion of new bands. I think. I don't think that's quite accurate. I think he was a champion of new sounds, and new. Um, I don't. Champion of new bands makes him sound like someone who was, who was trying to 
make musicians successful so that they would sell records and so that the greater wider music industry would benefit and everyone could have a backslapping party at the Brit Awards that is very much not what John Peel was about in fact very of very often he didn't like it when people became um, successful he didn't like what happened to them and he would stop playing their music um, there's a there's a show in 1979 right at the end of 79 that I write about where he's it's the end of a decade, and the um, the music weeklies have said, um, "Can you rec can you tell us what um, what people you're you you want to see become stars in in the new decade, the eighties?" And he says, "I don't want to see anybody become stars in the eighties. That's not why I play music. Um, there's too many stars. Why do we have to have stars? Why can't we just have people who make records?" He liked the idea of people making one or two singles and then splitting up vacating the stage for new for new people to come along i don't think he liked the idea of careers although ironically one of his favorite bands the fall have been together since 1976 now mm -hmm. and are probably in there what what would that make it 40 years or something almost 40 years and he would still if he were alive be playing their music today but he didn't um no he wasn't into career trajectories or launching people on the path to fame he was about discovering them early on when they sounded really new and interesting and different and creative and and supporting them when it when very often nobody else on, on radio had any interest in them at all like mark bolan or or bowie in his very early days or well beefart certainly um and and styles like reggae and african music which just weren't getting a fair crack of the whip on radio one at all mm. it's that integrity that makes him so appealing i think really that he was not swayed by the machine that is the industry integrity but very unpredictable and willful and capricious and maddening and infuriating often if you were part of the industry that was trying to get your band heard by him mm, I, can imagine. I did a talk with uh, David Gedge at the wedding present a few dates ago and uh, he's Gedge is a lucky recipient of Peel's enthusiasm Gedge will quite freely admit you know he might not have had a career in music if it hadn't been for the fact that Peel liked the wedding present and supported them throughout the 80s but Gedge knows bands from Leeds and elsewhere around the world that Peel didn't like. He played their tape or he played their single and he said, sorry, doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. And those, so those people never had a career in music. So in a way, he had too much power and he knew it. There's a show in 1980. In fact, it was the first show that I rediscovered, the one that my friend sent me and said, have a listen to this. And uh, a letter comes in from... Uh, a disgruntled uh, kid in the Midlands who's got a, an indie label and a band and he's furious because Peel hasn't played it and he's, he's saying well you've got to play my record otherwise I, I won't have a chance uh, my record won't sell and I've wasted my money and my time Peel already in 1980 is the, is the gatekeeper and the custodian and the, the, the guy who decides he's almost like the man from Del Monte in the advert saying you know yes <laughs> fantastic I can go through and have a life in music but if he says no it's almost the end of the line for a lot of these people. Yeah, it's a big burden yeah. for a man like Peel as yeah. well. And he didn't ask for it, no. um, but once he realized that that was the obligation, it be, he realized that he, he would have to try to listen to every single tape or record that he was sent. And they arrived by the bin bag, yeah. not only at his office at the BBC, but at his home. I can imagine knew what his more home than many was. people would do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, which really begs the question, seeing as he was such an iconoclast and such a kind of difficult, in some ways difficult sounding figure, how he managed to be so successful 
at an establishment like the BBC, which is so establishment, but he managed to be so anti at the well same time. It's, it's debatable whether he was successful because, um, I mean, he was probably one of the most underpaid DJs compared to the others. Um, he, um, yeah, they never sacked him, but they, they never, there were times when they never made him feel especially welcome. And there was certainly a lot of times when he felt insecure that the end, that the axe might be about to be wielded. Particularly, I suspect, as he was nearing um, anniversary birthdays like 40, uh, 50, and then 60, of course. I mean, he was, a, he was, a, he was an old-age pensioner um, by the time he, he, he died. On, on, um, so um, he must have thought, well, how long can it last? And, uh, I'd, I'd, you know, they never, w they never actually pulled the trigger and, and fired him, but... Um, I think it might have been nice. I sometimes think the dream scenario would have been for him to be sacked by Radio 1 round about 2012, by the which time Twitter existed, and then for there to be a Twitter outcry, which would mean he would be reinstated and find out what everybody thought about him, how, how kind of appreciated he was. Because there's no doubt about it, you know, people like Bowie and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd would have come out of the woodwork and... And Rod Stewart and Elton John and said, "You can't sack this man. He, you know, he was he supported me when nobody else wanted to listen." So you think during his life he didn't understand how appreciated he was and how influential he was? Well, he probably did, and yeah, I mean, he probably did. I mean, um, but then there'd be times where, for example, um, David Bowie sort of excommunicated, not excommunicated, but um, they they used to be quite good pals back in the late sixties. And Peel played Bowie's music when, when really no one else was in the early 70s. Um, then Bowie uh, broke through with uh, Ziggy Stardust, and Peel never saw him again. In fact, uh, Bowie did a quite a nice thing. He, 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 he recorded a little insert for um, Peel's This Is Your Life in 1996. But Peel writes in his autobiography that he never actually watched it. I think he was hurt by the fact that you know a lot of these early people that he played when when you know when no one else on Radio One had the time of day for them, um, they grew to be superstars and forgot their old mate John Peel. But people do, don't they? You know, I was quite um, impressed when Bernard Sumner of New Order, the day after Peel's death, said, "Quite simple. Without John Peel, there would have been no New Order." You know, a lot of bands don't. Uh, look back and remember that essential early champion that they had that took them from point A to point B um, and if you don't get from point A to point B sometimes you and many bands have lost heart and given up and over the years and it but it wasn't just that he brought these bands into the forefront and, and spotted talent. It was that he really shaped the way that Britain listened to music. And and you, I mean, the subtitle of this book is yeah. how, how John Peel helped shape modern life. I have bungled the words there, but that's essentially the idea. So yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, he helped to shape modern life by helping to shape modern lives. So that includes the musicians that he played, uh, who otherwise might never have had a, um, a chance to to uh, m m make a living out of music, but also the lives of the listeners who for, you know, for nine or 10 hours of, of the day had been, had been fed a, a constant stream of mainstream music and mainstream thinking, you could argue, from the, from the, from the glib DJs who host daytime shows. 
Um, Peel said to those listeners, effectively, don't believe the hype. Don't be afraid to be part of a minority rather than a majority. Um, look under the surface for the best music, firstly. And then that gave them the confidence to look under the surface for the best books, the best films, the best ideas, the best conversations, the best discourses. And that changes people's lives, especially if they're impressionable teenagers, as a lot of Peel's listeners would have been, facing the twin perils of peer pressure at school, which can be overwhelming, and this constant diet of advertising and marketing which children and adolescents and teenagers are fed from the moment they can watch television. That's why Peel was trusted. Not just because he, ca he had um, fascinating taste in music, not just because he gave us access to the 97% or 98% of music that, frankly, the rest of Radio 1 was denying us. You know, you're not allowed to look at that. No, move along. You can only look at what's in the charts. Um, but also because he was doing it in such a friendly and witty way. How could you not like this guy? How could you, how could you not want him in your in your study room or your or your house for for two hours a night? Yeah, you have a quote from somebody, and I can't remember who it is, who says, listening to him, it's like he had the power to speak as though he was speaking to only one person, yeah, yeah. and that kind of that comes across so. Um, so powerfully that there he wasn't interested in selling a John Peel brand. He wasn't interested in facing outward like if that. If he had been, his show would probably have been unbearable because <laughs> he probably said, you know, right, well, you'd have got all his mates to do idents and trailers for him, you know. Yeah. Hi, this is uh, Kurt Cobain. You're listening to my friend John Peel. It would have been awful. Yeah. No, if anything, it was the other. It was the ex he swung to the opposite extreme. He he never, I think, tried to take any advantage of of the impact that he'd had on um on music um he never called in any favors there's one point in the book where a, a listener he uh, faxes him or something and says um do you think he could get a velvet underground session this is 1993 when the velvet underground have got back together and they're playing around europe and they're about to do glastonbury and peel says well we you know i tried peel remember played the velvet underground in 1967 when djs in new york weren't playing them he he thought their first album was fantastic and played it, and that's where future members of Roxy Music and all kinds of bands first heard the Velvet Underground. If it, if he hadn't played them, that album might never have made any kind of dent in in British culture. Uh, so Peel said, "Well, I've written to them, and you know the producers um, sent word through saying it'd be great to get a session since this guy's one of the first people who ever played them in Britain. Not one of the first and the only." He could have said, you know, he could have been quite demanding about this, but he d I think he didn't like being uh, assertive in case the answer came back no. So he once told me that he saw Bowie at some um, event sometime in the, in the late 80s, and he was tempted to go across and just go, hi, Dave, remember me? And then he stopped because he thought, what if Bowie makes a point of saying, no, sorry, mate, I've never seen you before. It would be crushing. And I don't think I don't think he was he, he was too afraid of being crushed. So much more humble than I would have thought, and scared. Yeah. Um, so, as one final question, if I had to listen to one John Peel show yeah. to give me an idea of what he was and how he did what he did, yeah. which would you recommend? 
Um, well, there are various shows that show him doing the various e elements of that led up, you know, that, that comprised what he did. Um, there's the, well, the final Perfume Garden is fantastic. That's that's where he's not only closing, you know, bringing down the curtain on a, on his psychedelic um, pirate show, but also giving his listeners a really safe landing as they as they as they all face quite an uncertain future. Um, there are shows from the punk era where he is just totally flying out on a limb. He has no idea where this new music is taking him or his show. He has a fair idea that it, most of his listeners hate it and some of them may be deserting him in great numbers. But if there's one show that I think probably changed his life and the course of the Peel Show, it's the 29th of August 1977, a show often called the Second Punk Special, which he dedicates to 38 British punk records, many of them on independent labels rather than major labels, most of them from outside of London. And that's the show that gives encouragement and sustenance to any young musician who just wants to form a band, do it themselves, make a record, form a label, send it to John Peel, and uh, he'll listen to it. And that is the point where his life is no longer his own because his workload increases exponentially from from that night on and uh, the flow of product tapes albums singles you name it just became unstoppable and a, a constant burden to him from that moment on i'm gonna go home and listen to that yeah me too who who do who do we send our demos to these days there's no one like him is there no i suppose not well i mean there's local djs if peel had been a local you know the the night guy on radio humberside or radio nottingham you know he would have he would have performed a fantastic service for for people who came from that area but we wouldn't be talking about him now the crucial thing about him is that he had a national platform for 37 years a national platform to play the music from the north so people from the south could hear what was going on in you know tiny towns and and major cities up north where um as as um you know, Alan Bennett once remarked about Granada Television in the early days. Um, it allowed people in the middle classes to see what people in working class homes were doing. And so a nation was introduced to each other. And I think that's what the John Peel Show did. That's the service it provided. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. The book is called Good Night and Good Riddance, How 35 Years of John Peel Helped to Shape Modern Life. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, um, and now we're going to talk more generally about music and literature. So let's go back first to this idea that we discussed in our show about art with Rachel Kushner, um, which the uh, novelist Andrew O'Hagan put forward in an article, which he seems to do often with our show titles. Yeah, I feel like he's, he's on the same journey as we are. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> although I often disagree with him. But anyway, I think that's more fodder for excitement <laughs> and entertainment. Literary friction, um, after all. But, but put forward this idea that all novelists have our shadow art, the one that isn't ours, the one that we most covet, feeling it knows something about us. Um, he wrote that in the FT. So if we are going along with that idea, which I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true, um, 
but which novelists would we think of as people who had music as their shadow art? First, I would just say something about that. Like, I think if you're in the business of ideas, which is, you know, what like create creative, what we call the creative industries are all about, it makes sense that you would have a, a, a thought that you would maybe want to express in different ways in different mediums. So I think the shadow art thing is interesting. Um, what novelist? Well, Nick Hornby, it seems like an yes. obvious choice, right? Because of high fidelity and um, his general kind of vibe. About a boy. Mm, about that a has boy. music in it Songs as well. and stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, do you know what? I, I just said I didn't agree with him. But for this one, I think it's true. We're, you know, we're drawn to different arts uh, in different um, sort of intensities. Yeah. You know, we all know people who are totally obsessed with music and music seems to speak to them. Whereas, you know, I think we are both people that I would, well, at least I, I don't want to speak for you, but consider novels my passion and the thing that maybe speaks to me most deeply of all the arts in general. But it's funny, isn't it, though? Because it's different things. Like, I find myself with music incredibly um, resp responsive to it and deeply, deeply affected by it. But I'm not, um, whereas I will read anything and I want to read everything, I'm like the opposite of John Peel in music. Like there's a lot of music that I find too uh, raw for me in one way or another. Like a certain kind of indie rock that has a slightly melancholic key. I can't, it fucks me up. <laughs> it really so does. it's too intense it's too, Yeah, and, and this is the th Exactly, this is the thing that I think is so amazing about music because it bypasses language. It speaks to the unconscious directly. And that's why it can be so transformative and so over overpowering. Um, and because the sense of hearing is a sense that you can't shut off. So, you know, if a book gets too intense for you, you can close it. Yeah, so let's, um, let's explore those differences between music and literature and how you might capture them in a book because I think that's what this discussion is really mm. about. So there's a really interesting article in The New Yorker um, that I read recently that is kind of tapping into what you're saying um, just now by Nicholas Dames. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. It was in January 2015. And he suggested that novelists m more recently have turned to music as the novel becomes a, a less relevant cultural form. Music sort of, you know, there, there have been many people um, in the history of art criticism who have claimed that music is the highest art. So Walter Pater, Schopenhauer. And maybe it has to do with that primacy that you're talking about, the way that it is uh, able to take us over emotionally mm. in a way that n nothing else really can. And the way that it's probably more abstract than most of the other arts. I think that's true. And I think also the communal element, because you can be in a space with many other people and experience music all together at the same time, at the same pace and have an immediate response to it. Whereas, you know, novels, you're going to read it differently from me. And it's not that, I think it's a lot to do with connection to the, um, to, to the ability to see, because words are constantly constructing pictures um, in quite an, in, in, engaging in the intellect, you know? They're like des descriptive words and in novels describing what characters look like, and we might have slightly different mental pictures of what the same character looks like. And the music, thing it can touch uh, the song can touch me and touch you in a very different way but it's like you said it's more abstract so it's less um it's less contentious in that way mm. you know um and i think also there's something to be said about it being even more subjective because it has this direct passage to the unconscious um i think it's i think it's harder to say that music is bad and that music is good than it is to say that novel is bad or that novel is good because music has less of a formal structure to it. Uh, not all music at, at all, but like, I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe there's a lot more scope for um, 
experimentation in music than there is in literature. There's only so many times you can break a novel apart and try and do it and reinvent it in this crazy new way. Whereas I think with music, you know, new sounds are being created all the time. You know, what's happening in electronic music and then contemporary classical music. And I don't know, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. Although I would maybe say that we're being quite restrictive when we talk about novels and words themselves are actually quite flexible and mutable and poetry gets closer to music. Absolutely. Um, and, and of course, words are such an essential part of most of the music that we listen to now. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but I, I think you're probably right about that. And I think that it's also music is so easily consumable. Yeah, And exactly. that this is part of um, his, his uh, point in this article, Nicholas Dames, which is basically that um, music attention is kind of the be all and end all mm. of music it's it's all about it's the focus um and novels can't just by their nature can't sustain that kind of attention and that and that kind of excitement and focus um and so he's saying okay well a lot of novelists have been trying to recapture that idea by having you know that I, I was mentioned a visit from the goon squad at the very beginning of um the show and there's a scene at the very end when there's a huge concert um, in which everyone is having the same experience and all focusing on this one thing, which is which you just can't do in a book. No, and that's where sort of the scene and the hedonism comes in. I don't want to talk about that bit too much because it's my recommendation later. <laughs> um, but it is that thing of, yes, a communal experience of altered states and hedonism, the rock concert or any concert, in fact, classical music concert, the opera, whatever, mm. you're, you're all being overwhelmed and taken into kind of a sublime place at the same time. And that's really fertile territory for writers as mm. well because it's that you have these figures from the music industry, again, whether they... I mean, the, the trope of the musician in literature and cinema is someone who is outside of society slightly, who's you know has an obsessive talent that they pursue at the cost of all else. It's quite a romantic lonely figure almost um and so with that comes this idea about transgression and you know choosing a, an unconventional life like i'm thinking of i've actually completely forgotten his name awful but that character in franzen's freedom the sexy one who's richard the, there we go richard who's who is totally playing with that archetype of the brooding sexy smoking drug-taking whatever um out there kind of character um and i think I think that's something that draws us towards those kind of characters yeah. in, in those books, people who've completely given themselves up for their art. I mean, the writer is a similar figure within literature, the poet. Yeah. So now we're getting into what can, what purpose can music serve in a novel? Um, so it can maybe refocus our attention to pick some kind of communal focus in a mm. way that just writing about any other thing might not. Um, as you say, it can be a way of making someone sexy or counterculture. Um, it can also, you know, music is a great barometer of who a person is. Well, that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking of Patrick Bateman, who in Bretty Sinellis, American Psycho, um, the fact that his his favorite bands are all these really naff bands from the 80s. Like, he, he loves Genesis, he loves Phil Collins, and this, he doesn't want people to know how much he loves Phil Collins, because actually, he's quite naff in his taste. Um, and, you know, in, when, when Ellis includes these cultural markers that he knows his reading audience is gonna uh, understand exactly what they mean, and it's gonna um, 
immediately give them another sense of Patrick Bateman that maybe to describe in words would have taken you know mm. a whole other chapter. Yeah, and getting back to this idea of something, if music has something that's more emotional, our taste in that seems to possibly speak to what we are in our very inner selves, um, yeah. like Patrick Bateman. I always think of that scene from Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which is a film, um, so bear with me here, by Woody Allen, but um, it, it's Vicky played by Rebecca Hall um, and Scarlett Johansson is Christina and she's much more sort of fun loving and ready to do whatever takes her fancy and um, keeps skipping off with Javier Bardem to like Spanish islands and uh, Vicky goes along begrudgingly but is is quite uptight and uh, has a has a boyfriend waiting for her back home and envisions a very normal life for herself in the end. But then they go to this uh, performance by a Spanish guitarist and um, Vicky's completely moved by it. Um, I think there's even a voiceover saying that she was moved by it in that very obvious Woody Allen way. But what the film is suggesting and, and what I think comes across is that um, there are depths to her that we didn't understand up to this point in the film and her and her response to that music is is a much deeper and more real version of her than than what she projects to the world. Yeah, and I think that gets back to this idea of, <coughs> excuse me, language and being able to bypass language. Language traps us. Language can be misinterpreted and misunderstood. Words can mean something to me that they don't mean to you. Whereas music, because of its abstraction, is different. And the thing in film, when you have a performance like that within a film, you as the audience are having a completely communal experience with the characters in the film. And so you step outside of the, the space of performance for a moment and you experience the pure sublime of art. And I think that then levels you with the characters. And like you said, like Vicky suddenly becomes human in a way that you know you didn't necessarily see before. Um, and you, yeah, you see that kind of the, the hidden depth and the authenticity. And I think in a book, in a novel, you know, like using Egan actually again, but that the rock concert, obviously she's constrained because she's having to describe the experience in words, but there is so much there that anyone who's been to a rock concert finds themselves being reminded of. And so in a way, it's a, it's a way of using that um, tool, but via language rather than via sound, because you do, well I found anyway, that scene really brought back, I felt like I was there in a really powerful way. Um, yeah. yeah, and ultimately, words can never really depict what music is like. Yeah. And I think that's probably more true than the visual arts. And people might disagree with me, but again, that abstraction mm. of music mm. makes it impossible to describe what it's like to listen to music, yes. besides maybe how we feel in our body, but uh, actual music, how do you how do you even start to write about exactly. it? How do you understand what how, what, how to write about a sound? Well, you know, it's it's, its own language. But yeah. I, I, I think that's probably gets the point of the best novels about music are probably novels about scenes in music exactly. and and figures and, figures mm. and ex like sort of group experiences of music rather yeah. than the music itself because it's so hard to capture. Yeah. So like Nick Hornby, it's all about people who are obsessed with music. It's not really about music. I mean, it is, of course, but... But not in that way. But tangentially. Yeah, and the same with Roddy Dawes' The Commitments, which is a riot of a book. And it's much more about the messy things that happen between band members, you know, when there's a common purpose, but everyone has their own agenda. Or, you know, it's like the kind of Yoko Ono thing, like one of them kisses the girl and then suddenly everything is ruined. But it, it is because it's about immersing 
as the reader, you're immersing yourself in this scene. Um, let's talk about our favorite books about music. So do you want to start, Octavia? I'll You've start. hinted at your choice <laughs> already. It, at it. Yeah, seeing as it's already come up. Um, my choice is A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. It's interesting. It's great. It's, it's debatable whether it's a book of short stories or a novel because each, I guess, what would equate to a chapter is a different story and the characters are all interlinking. I think it's like an, an album. You know, it, it's a really good parallel for the shape of an album. Individual things that are very different from one another but make up a whole that, that gives you a really full sense of understanding. Um, it's balls deep in the music industry. It's mostly set in and around New York City. Um, and the central figure, if that, if you can call it that, because of the structure, it's it's interesting. You don't have, like, the... the driving protagonist in the same way as you do in other novels, which I really enjoyed. But I suppose the guy who kind of is a figure at the center of the action is this man called Benny Salazar, and he's an aging rock music executive, and he's a bit of a tragic figure. Um, and he, it's a, it's sort of set over um, uh, uh, many years, I think it starts in, this, yeah, in the 60s and it ends up in just into the future. He used to be in a band called the Flaming Dildos. So, you know, this the decline of the, of the pop, culture icon, you know, um, is quite present. And then he sets up his own record label. And it's really, I mean, like the themes, obviously the music industry, but she uses music as a signpost to help us understand the passing of time, the changing of trends, you know, what people are listening to. And this comes through in the John Peel book so much, in David's book, um, the connection between music written in its contemporary time and what's happening in the world around it. And that's another way that you can bring it in in such an interesting it's an interesting trope. Um, anyway, this kind of thing about, yeah, and about a scene that's very messy, an industry that's obsessed with iconoclasm and youth, people who are living in pretty destructive ways, drugs, sex, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, she's really kind of playing with our fascination with this world that's kind of obsessed with cool and status and the disconnect between what you're projecting to the outer world mm. and what's really going on I underneath. And she has an incredibly humanist way of understanding her characters, which is one of the things I liked so much about it. Um, I actually want to read it again. I, it yeah, was, I, I knew I would go back to it when I finished it, actually. I loved that book, and I don't remember a lot of the things that happened in it. So mm. I, th I really, after, especially after this discussion, I really want to go back mm. to it. And especially after reading um, Good Night and Good Riddance, the John Peel book, um, which I think he really argues for the central place of the DJ in our culture. Oh, totally. Um, and, and maybe specifically John Peel, but I think about music as a way, as, as you say, of expressing um, the, the political moment in yeah. a way that books probably can't do just because of time more yeah. than anything else. Um, Great. Okay. Well, I have a very different uh, recommendation, uh, which is when I thought about music in books, I instantly thought of Charles Swan in the first book of Proust, In Search of Lost Time. In um, the first book of uh, In Search of Lost Time, Swan hears a little phrase of music from a violin sonata and becomes haunted by it. Um, it seems to suggest to him a new kind of experience that he has never felt before, but also just in the way that we get songs stuck in our head, he just becomes obsessed with it. And I'm sure every single person listening to the show um, and you, Octavia, has had multiple moments like that when you just become obsessed by a piece of music and not just by a piece of music, but by a little turn of phrase yeah. that just can't, it, that gives you goosebumps every time you hear it, that you couldn't replay it enough. Mm -hmm. um, this is also before recording, so yeah, Swan has a harder time tracking down ah. what <laughs> what the <laughs> phrase is and no and how to play it, but he he does. Um, but 
when he hears this phrase of music, it's also around the time that he falls in love with um, a young woman named Odette, and he comes to associate this phrase with his passion for her. Um, I've summed this up rather terribly, but I remember reading this and thinking, yes, Proust understands the power of music. He just understands it. He understands how it invades our lives and becomes associated with everything we feel and think. And also the way that that phrases, as I was just talking about, stick with us, the way that music haunts us and echoes in our head and suggests some sort of otherworldly experience. I mean, I think it gets back to why so many people have said that music is the highest art is because it suggests something beyond what we know and what we think. Yeah, and because it, because of its immediacy, it can build these really solid associations with other senses. Like for, for Swan, mm. there will be songs that will be always stitched yes. to the idea of a particular person or a particular taste. And they, you know, they perform the function yeah. of the Madeleine. Actually, um, Egan, Jennifer Egan, uh, credits Proust as part of her inspiration for a visit from the That's so book. funny. Yeah. Um, and yes, exactly. And what Proust is kind of suggesting is that um, Swan's love is sort of performed through art. So it's performed through the sonata and also he becomes obsessed with this portrait that he thinks looks like Odette. Um, and so art sort of mediates his love, which is a very interesting idea anyway. But I just wanted to end by um, reading a, a quote from the Moncrief translation. Um, about why these little phrases of music stick with us. Um, we shall perish, but we have for our hostages these divine captives who shall follow and share our fate, and death in their company is something less bitter, less inglorious, perhaps even less certain. I think that's beautiful. I've actually got goosebumps <laughs> as you read it. That's wonderful, yeah. Okay, Very well, well translated also. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, Moncrief, <laughs> the master. Um, well, uh, we will be back in a little bit after a song to share our book recommendations with David Kavanaugh. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright and David Kavanaugh, our wonderful author guest, who is here to give his book recommendations. Um, Octavia, would you like to start with your recommendation? Um, my book this month is actually a book I read in translation. It's German, um, but there's an excellent translation provided by Imogen Taylor. The book is called The Truth and Other Lies, and it's by a writer called Sasha Arango. Um, and I was introduced to it by the dear old BBC book at bedtime, which you know I love to listen to. Um, and I went and, and bought it, and I've really, really enjoyed reading it. It's a kind of um, witty, acerbic, very lightly written um, story that the, the anti-hero, the sociopathic anti-hero, I would say, uh, Henry Hayden, um, has echoes of Humbert Humbert from Lolita and um, various other kind of sinister figures, a bit Mr. Ripley also, you know. Um, and he, he's this world-famous best-selling novelist, but he's also a fraud. His wife, Martha, actually has written all of his books, and she is this kind of figure of... Um, total creative integrity she just wants to write she doesn't want anything from it so they make this brilliant team she writes these phenomenal books he is the public face he has the fast car and the sexy suit and all of that stuff um but he's also cheating on her and um 
Yeah, he's a real cat. He's very greedy, and he has this this mistress. And at the very beginning of the book, um, the mistress is a young editor at his publishers, so it's all wound together in you know commenting on the industry essentially. Um, she, his mistress reveals that she's pregnant, and so he decides to kill her. But in a terrible fuck up, he kills his wife instead, by mistake. And so the narrative begins. So he's kind of ruined his own life um, in a desperate act of selfish drive. Um, and it's it's very funny. It is not heavy in any way. Um, it's a clever twisting plot um, that kind of feels like it's always a step ahead of itself, even let alone you. Um, and I loved it. It's it's just been. It was pacey. I read it very fast. It made me laugh out loud. Um, and yeah, just some witty observations about you know when you take creativity and turn it into something that's monetized, and you know you take talent and you you corrupt it with greed. You know, it's a it's a great book. I would recommend it. I can't believe that was on the BBC. But I guess after a show about John Peel, we should give the BBC a little more credit. Well, they're doing at the moment, which is I'm really pro, um, a, a series called Reading Europe on the book at bedtime, where they're taking a book from a different European country. Um, they just did one from Austria. But I think it's brilliant. I mean, the, the Beeb do some great stuff. They really do. Dear old Radio 4. <laughs> David, could we have your book recommendation, please? Well, I've been rereading Just Kids by Patti Smith. Uh. We Which are big Patti Smith fans. Well, I'm glad I must to hear say it. now, I'm about to go to see her this evening. Right. Um, with a cup and the uh, she's here to promote M Train. Yes. Um, well, I'm I'm reading it prior to delving into M Train because uh, um, I love Just Kids and I th it, it really repays a second reading and probably third or fourth. But um, not many lyricists or or um, poets um, can do prose, and she's one of the few who can probably I mean, arguably even write better prose than she writes lyrics. And uh, I interviewed her a few years ago and said, well, it's so great. Can we now have a memoir? Now that you've done Robert Maplethorpe, can we have one about Fred, your husband? And she said, well, that might be a little bit too personal. But I'm hoping. I've read a couple of reviews that suggest that Fred is mentioned once or twice. I'm a big, big Fred Sonic Smith fan. Um, I love his band, uh, Sonic's Rendezvous Band and the MC5. So I'm hoping she says stuff about him because the 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 anecdotes and reminiscences that she shared with me about Fred were, were probably some of the most touching parts of, of the three or four hour interview I did with her. And she is a fantastic writer, no doubt about it. So it will be great to read M Train. Yeah, fantastic. One of the things I like, sorry, just one more thing, is um, she has the humility and self-knowledge to remember a time when she was the least important person in the room. And the best scene in that book, I think, is the Max's Kansas City stuff where she and Maplethorpe are desperate to edge their way into the Warhol um, coterie but they're nobodies they're just hicks they're rubes and uh, she remembers that brilliantly and can write about a time when nobody noticed her or cared about her and that takes real class Patti Smith is a fantastic writer yeah we love her yeah she's one of my total heroes um, I also the just Kids, I agree with you. I read it a couple of times, but I also listened to it. She does a reading of it herself. Oh, really? You must, must get it. Yeah. It's amazing because yeah. you just, it's, she is just in your ear telling you these stories yeah. and hearing it in her voice. Totally. And she is the best, one of the best readers of her own poetry that I've ever heard anywhere. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm not sure I can follow that up, but, um, and this isn't really a recommendation even, so I d it's definitely not a great follow-up to that, but um, it's a book that I, it's affected me more than anything else in a while, so I, I wanted to talk about it, and you may have already guessed that I'm talking about A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, 
which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and has been of a something of a literary sensation this fall. It's it's what everyone's talking about. There are lots of articles about her. Um, and the novel is the story of four college roommates and their struggle to make it in New York throughout their adult lives, um, sort of in the contemporary day. Um, but it is also a novel about the power of friendship and even more the horrible, inescapable repercussions of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, it, the book is flawed in so many ways. I can't even list them here, but it's too long. Um, a lot of the plot lines are kind of unbelievable. I, I won't go into it, but if you read it, you'll see what I mean. And um, some of the writing is just quite sloppy. Uh, but I just couldn't stop reading it. And not only that, I couldn't stop feeling intense emotions of sadness and joy and fear and anger and you could say that maybe that's just a manipulative trick but I I don't know I think I I did ask myself many many times whether it's ever worth it or responsible even to be writing scenes that were this harrowing and this upsetting um, and provoking that kind of emotion but then I thought well maybe that's one of the things that the novel can do that nothing else can do besides maybe music actually um, and so I think I'm glad I read it, <laughs> but beware. So that's it. <laughs> that's it for today's show. Thanks to David Kavanaugh, whose book, Good Night and Good Riddance, How 35 Years of John Peel Helped to Shape Modern Life, is out in bookstores now, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or on ntslive.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please leave comments and give us five-star ratings. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>